Let's open up our Bibles to Matthew chapter 5. And I want to start with some trivia to start our sermon today. Do you know how many countries there are in the world? Anyone know how many countries there are in the world? So I asked this question to our children at the dinner table last night. You saw them on the screen earlier to give a report on their answers. Lauren, our two-year-old daughter, said one. One, there's some, there's some, there's some unhealthy nationalist tendencies in that girl. I got, we got to work it out. But she thinks there's just one. It's just us. Um, her twin brother Graham said two, two. Which, upon further reflection, you know, he might just be more theologically advanced than us. He's thinking kingdom of the world, kingdom of God, right? There's just two in the end of the day. Um, our four-year-old Brinley went with ten thousand. Just blow it out of the water. Let's see, if we can do it. Our six-year-old Caden said ten. Which, to be honest, I'm a little disappointed in him about that. Like, I just, I, that actually, I hurt a little bit. I didn't let him know. You don't need to tell him. But uh, he said 10. And Rochelle came in at 183, which was close. But the answer, if you have it in your head, see how close you are, is 195. The most recent being South Sudan that became its own nation in 2011. And with the exception of, I think, four countries... The United States has an ambassador in all of them. An ambassador is the highest ranking representative of one country that lives in another country. So the United States has over 190 ambassadors living abroad. And likewise, there's over 190 foreign ambassadors living in the United States. So let me just choose one at random. There's a woman named Natalie Brown. Do you know Natalie Brown? Well, she's our U.S. ambassador to the country of Uganda. And every single day, Natalie wakes up with a question. How can I best represent the interests of the United States and what is now the Biden administration while living in Uganda? How do I represent one nation while living in another? That word ambassador, it's seen mainly today as a diplomatic term in the world, but it didn't start there. The Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 19 and 20 writes this, In Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their transgression against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Watch. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us. Every believer is an ambassador for Christ. Meaning that every single day, we wake up with a question. How can I best represent the interests of the kingdom of God while living in the kingdom of the world? And the Sermon on the Mount, the passages that we're walking through verse by verse in Matthew 5 through 7 in this sermon series, describes life and citizenship in the kingdom of God. It provides a picture for us of what kind of people are in that kingdom and how do their lives represent that kingdom. And that's why we're taking our time walking through this. It's going to be about six months in the Sermon of the Mount. And I start with that illustration this morning because as we talk about individual passages, I think particularly one of the ones that we're going to hit this morning, we tend to isolate them 
from the greater context, right? Sherry was talking about that a little bit in the video announcing the women going through the Bible in the month of March, that it's, it's best to kind of walk through passages to, all together, a book together, cover to cover to see its context, not just isolate certain passages away from it. Because we might lose fact, lose sight of the fact that our lives always go beyond ourselves. Everything we do, church, or don't do, every single day, represents the kingdom of God. And so let's go into our text this morning. We're going to be picking it up where we left off last week. And I'm going to read Matthew 5, verses 31 to 37. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife... Let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Again, you have heard it said that it was, again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, For it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you simply let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. So Jesus is in the midst of giving six illustrations to display his singular point from verse twenty. That point in verse 20 was that in order to enter the kingdom of heaven, your righteousness must exceed that of the scribes and the Pharisees. And then he gives these six examples to contrast the Pharisees' bad teaching of God's law to his right teaching of God's law. And this morning we're up to the third and fourth examples. Marriage and divorce, and then taking oaths. If you watched last week, we were all virtual last week, but we talked about the passage previously about lust. I said that's a topic that right right when it's announced, everyone gets an immediate discomfort in their chest. Well, we're back this week with another immediate discomfort here when we talk about marriage and divorce. And that teaching on divorce in church is very uncomfortable, which in turn is why you don't hear it very often. But that adds to the problem because when it's not talked about often, it makes it even more comfortable when it is talked about. And for many, I know it's not merely about discomfort, but deep pain. Perhaps you are a child of divorce. Perhaps you have gone through a divorce personally. Or perhaps you're, on, you're in a marriage where you feel like, maybe it's spoken or unspoken, that it's on the table deep emotional pain and and even trauma for for many. So I want to kind of put my cards on the table. Um, I have to be honest, I would never choose to talk about divorce in church. I'm just not that courageous, which is one of, not the only, but one of the reasons why our primary preaching rhythm at Grace Church is to go through books of the Bible verse by verse, or in the case of the Sermon on the Mount, going through extended sections within books of the Bible because I can not be um, subject to my own fears. I can't avoid it. I, I thought about just skipping verses 31 and 32, see if I got any emails, right? Just go to the next passage, see if anyone forgot or, or didn't realize and didn't notice, but don't think that would have worked out. This is why often I think why many churches, when they do their preaching, they do just topical sermon series, four to six weeks on a different topic, 
And with that strategy, you choose a topic, and then, and then you find passages on your own from different books of the Bible to feed into that topic. And most of the time, they never talk about divorce, because honestly, why would they? We're not against topical sermons. We don't think they're unfaithful. We just don't think they're the best way to build up the church. But we do a few around the church calendar, calendar uh, Easter and Advent, and a sermon each uh, series each fall on vision. And in five years of preaching, three to four topical sermon series a year, you know what I've never done in my office when I'm looking for passages? I've never scanned through and said, you know what would be great for this series? A sermon on divorce. It's never happened. And so here's my goal up front. I want to be sensitive to the topic and yet be clear and convictional in unpacking what God's word says, knowing I can't say everything about it in this sermon. And so as we get into it, if there is something you hear that, you just, that, that maybe strikes you a little odd or, or you want to talk more about, I want to encourage feedback, encourage you to kind of get in touch. Let's talk this week. Let's dialogue this week because I probably won't cover everything that there is to cover. But we're going to look at marriage and divorce, and we're going to do so through two questions. First, what did the Pharisees say? And then second, what does Jesus say? Okay, pretty simple. And then we're going to ask the same two questions on the next topic on making and taking oaths. What did the Pharisees say? And then what does Jesus say? So first, on marriage and divorce, what did the Pharisees say? Jesus tells those listening, you have heard it said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. This line of thinking by the Pharisees comes from a single passage in the book of Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy chapter 24 Many of you know that Deuteronomy is Moses' final words to the nation of Israel after they have wandered the desert for 40 years and were about to head into the promised land. Pastor Joe is is teaching a six-week class on the book and themes out of Deuteronomy, and that's where this passage in Matthew 5 comes from. So let's look at that passage. What are they thinking about when they say that in Deuteronomy 24? So it's going to be on the screen. Deuteronomy 24, 1 through 4. When a man takes a wife and marries her, if then she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, and she departs out of his house, and if she goes and becomes another man's wife, and the latter man hates her and writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, or if the latter man dies who took her to be his wife, Then her former husband, who sent her away, may not take her again to be his wife after she has been defiled, for that is an abomination before the Lord. All right, how many of you guys are like, wait, God's word just said what? But this is where it's coming from. And at first glance, you might hear that in Deuteronomy 24. You might look back in your Bible, Matthew 5, where the Pharisees say, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce and go, well, they're right. That's what it says. But the problem is the way the Pharisees applied this law in Jesus' time. And the phrase that got all the focus from Deuteronomy 24 was that phrase in verse 1, some indecency. If a husband has found some indecency in her and writes her a certificate of divorce, so the question became, what actions fall under some indecency? The answer in the law was not adultery, because adultery, according to the Mosaic law, was punishable by death, not divorce, which we'll address later. So it was something less than adultery by the time of the first century, 
And the scribes and Pharisees had come up with their own definition. And basically, if a man found anything in his wife that he did not like, he could claim it as some indecency. And it would be okay as long as he did it the right way, meaning he gives, gives her a certificate of divorce. And we know this was the pervasive stance because in Matthew 19, if you have your Bibles open, if you want to flip very quickly to Matthew 19, Jesus was asked about this specifically. In Matthew 19, verse 3, it says, And Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? They did not value marriage in the first century. They did not care about why someone would want to get a divorce, but were only concerned that divorces were carried out according to the law of Moses with this certificate. That's what the Pharisees say. So now second question, what does Jesus say? Back to Matthew 5, but keep your finger in Matthew 19, so we'll be back there in a moment. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery, and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. So, so Jesus does a couple of things here. He, he, he corrects their wrong view and in interpretation of marriage, and he shows why the new covenant replaces the old covenant teaching of marriage and divorce. So he does not correct Moses, he does not, but he replaces it, for he has now fulfilled the law. Now go back to Matthew 19, where Jesus was just asked, can a man divorce his wife for any reason at all? Because that is where Jesus is going to give his fullest teaching and answer, which is going to shed light on his answer in Matthew 5, or his teaching in Matthew 5. So Matthew 19, now verse 4. Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh? So they are no longer two but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. Okay, here's the most significant point of the morning. Ready? When Jesus was asked about divorce... He answers by talking about marriage. When Jesus was asked about divorce, he answers by talking about marriage first. He will address their question, but he shifts the focus from when is it okay to divorce to why did God create marriage in the first place? And to do so, he doesn't go to the law of Moses. He goes all the way back to the creation story, to the first chapter of the Bible. He quotes Genesis 1 and 2, which, by the way, was still written by who? Moses. So, so the Pharisees were all hung up on the law of Moses in Deuteronomy. Jesus says, listen, that's not all Moses wrote about marriage. In fact, he gives us the oranges, or, origins of marriage instated by God himself. And marriage was not instated for tax laws or for estate wills. It was introduced into creation before the fall as something that was good and right, as a picture of two becoming one. From the beginning, the first institution God instated was a worldly, visible union that represents a heavenly, invisible union between creator and creation. 
And Paul will clarify this and, and even kind of confirm it in Ephesians chapter 5. If there was any doubt that this was God's design, saying that the relationship between a husband and a wife is a picture of the relationship between Christ and his church. And that through faith in Christ, we are united with him. We are in him and he in us. And once we are saved, there is no pulling apart. Once you are in Christ, church, nothing in the world can separate you from the love of God. So pertaining marriage, Jesus says, What God has joined together, let no man separate. God has designed marriage to be a lifelong union between one man and one woman. But the question does remain, well then why does Moses give laws about divorce? If that's not God's design, why do those laws even exist? Why is Deuteronomy chapter 24 there? Jesus said, the Lord had Moses write this into law, not because he desires divorce, but he recognizes the reality of divorce in a fallen, broken world. Jesus concedes to divorce in specific situations, but he never commands it. In that this is God regulating what has become irregular due to sin. And if you actually unpacked and studied Deuteronomy 24, that law of Moses was put in place to protect the women and not to objectify them, to protect them from being just casted out and having without a certificate that would leave them shamed and even maybe in danger of their life because their suspicion of adultery. But by the time of the first century, this terrible teaching distorted the purpose and the meaning of marriage where you can get married, you can get divorced for whatever you want, whatever indecency you can, you can find, just do it the right way. But the Bible is clear, God hates divorce. And he will concede to it in a fallen world, and there's really two specific situations that the Bible concedes to divorce. Here in Matthew 5, the case of sexual immorality, and then Paul in 1 Corinthians 7 will say that divorce is also permitted in the case of desertion. So one is free to divorce and remarry if it is a case of sexual immorality or desertion. I think there's a connection between those two because in the case of adultery, a spouse has deserted their covenant. They've deserted their vows of two becoming one by bringing someone else into the union. And I would also include that abuse is a form of desertion, that a woman or a man, but predominantly it happens in case of women, should not feel obligated to stay in a marriage where they are being abused because their spouse has deserted their vow to commit to them. But Jesus in this gospel, nor Paul in 1 Corinthians 7, will never say it is commanded or even encouraged, but they concede to it. And the reason, just practically, is because divorce is so damaging. It's not just a theological discussion. It, it does real collateral damage. Like I said at the beginning, there's deep pain associated with it. It does damage to the witness of the kingdom of God, but also to people's souls, right? To the husband and wife themselves, to any children that are in the relationship, right? And it's not just impacting them when they're young, but I've talked to more adults than I even would have fathomed that talk about how much they have been shaped by childhood divorce. It never goes away. 
So in 1 Corinthians 7, there was a recurring situation in Corinth, apparently, where Paul had to address this, where, um, where not only was there a case of um, maybe sexual immorality, but there'd be a case where people in the city of Corinth were coming to Christ, but their spouse did not. And so in very natural questions, as well, if I become a Christian, but my spouse is not a Christian, should I leave them? And Paul is saying here, no, don't leave them. You stay in the marriage. Because divorce has the potential to do so much damage, but also because in your staying commitment to your vows, you are representing the kingdom of God in that marriage, even if your spouse does not believe like you believe. So divorce is never desired. It's never encouraged or commanded. But Jesus says, ushering in this new covenant, that it is permissible, back to Matthew 5 now, in the case of sexual immorality, which includes adultery. And so he fulfills the Old Testament from, that, from the point that from here on out, the, pe- the penalty for adultery is no longer death. And that story in John 8 that you might know, when they bring somebody to um, Jesus and say, does this woman deserve to die? And Jesus says, no, let he be without sin, cast the first stone, and says, you go and sin no more. But that no longer is the punishment death, but that it is a potential for a divorce. So that's the new covenant replacing the old covenant, fulfilling it. And that the church will not be like Israel in that it's a theocracy. And the church no longer has the ability to condemn anyone to death. But the union of marriage between one man and one woman, it's for this world and not for heaven. I mentioned this last week. If you listen, Jesus is also clear elsewhere in the gospel that there will be no marriage in heaven. Because marriage serves as a witness to God in our union with him. So what God has joined together, let no man separate. But that union will no longer be necessary in heaven because it's no longer projecting the witness of God to an unbelieving world. And so all believers can affirm and endorse this because marriage, again, is a picture of the gospel. Which is why this sermon is not just for married people. Because back to the top, what do we do every single day when we wake up as Christians? We have a question staring us in the face. Today, how will I be a good ambassador for the kingdom of God? How will I represent his kingdom while living in another kingdom? One way is for all Christians to have a right view of marriage. So single people can have a healthy view of marriage even if they're not married. And if we were to really ask everybody... Um, that who are the most influential people in your life to encourage you in your marriage? Many people might have a single man or woman who serve as the biggest encouragement for them in their marriage, even though that person themselves is not married. Even if you don't have that, you know who you do have? Jesus. You know what Jesus was? Not married. And Paul, you know what Paul was? Not married. And yet two single people have shared the best and perfect truth of marriage. So marriage's purpose is never primarily for the people getting married. Its primary purpose is to glorify God and tell the story of the gospel to the world through your marriage. And so this is something that, church, I think we need to get right because there is a prevalent, dominant mindset that marriage exists to fulfill us. 
that we won't be fulfilled unless we find the perfect person, the one person in the globe that God has created for us. And we internalize marriage where it's all about me and my happiness and my fulfillment, and it's horrifically misguided. Completion and fulfillment is found in Christ, not marriage. And I know 80% of the romantic movies or the Hallmark movies where somebody inevitably ends up standing in the pouring rain telling somebody else that they won't be complete unless they find them. It might make for a great movie, but it's terrible theology. Now listen, is there joy to be had in marriage? Absolutely. Praise God for it. But our ultimate fulfillment in life is not contingent upon an amazing, all-fulfilling marriage. And so our view of it is put on display for the world to see this is a way we represent the kingdom of God. All right, well, let's cover the next passage. We're not going to spend as long here uh, because while the wording might have seemed confusing when I first read it about making and taking oaths, it's actually pretty simple and straightforward. So first, again, what do the Pharisees say about this? We're in verses 33 to 37. Verse 33, again, you have heard it that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. Okay, so you won't find that line anywhere in the Old Testament. But like the one earlier, it is a summary of various Old Testament texts. Let me share one. The closest one is Leviticus 19, verse 12, where it says, You shall not swear falsely, and so profane the name of your God. I am the Lord. But making oaths, right, commitments in the Old Testament was not prohibited. And even making oaths in the name of the Lord was actually encouraged in places. Let me show you one example there. Numbers chapter 30, verse 2. If a man vows a vow to the Lord or swears an oath to bind himself by a pledge, he shall not break his word. He shall do according to all that proceeds out of his mouth. Okay, so here's how the Pharisees twisted this. Here's how they got around it. It's almost so ridiculous, but it's true that this is what happened. If you swore by something other than God, then it was okay to break that oath. But if you ever swore to, something in the, to do something in the name of God, now you had to do it. So they had, you might imagine, by the time of the first century, a long and complicated list, because Pharisees loved long and complicated lists, of things you could swear by and not be bound to it, where there'd be no penalty if you broke your word. And they had all these rules in place, and, and Jesus would allude to some of them in verses 34, 35, and 36, that they would swear by the earth, or they would swear by the city of Jerusalem, or by heaven, or on their own head. And if they swore by that, they weren't bound to it, like they were bound to it if they swore by God. And so we'll get to what Jesus says, but I can't help but notice here that as weird as that all sounds, this code still kind of like exists in our world today. Like I think back on my childhood, I don't even know where like we got this, me and my friends, but we'd swear by all kinds of things. 
right? Like I have memories at an early age, elementary school, and where, where we'd be like, I swear it's true. And somebody would be like, well, do you swear on your mother's life? And you'd be like, whoa, no, I don't have to say that, but I'll do it on my brother's life, right? Like there's just, there's like all these kind of weird unspoken codes that seems to happen amongst children, but there's something innate in us, but like I can't go to that level, but let me go to this level because that's not as serious. If I break it, I won't be conscious, uh, won't be like, it won't hit my conscience as much. Or I swear over my dead body. Like, I don't even know what that means. But we toss it around all the time. But the point was, I guess, as kids, and we probably just do it more sophisticated way as adults, is we wanted to convey, no, I'm really serious about this. And so we want to strengthen our oath, whatever it was about. And in elementary school, it was never important. But my brother's life was on the line. And however you slice it, the Pharisees had basically rules in place that gave themselves permission to not follow through on their word and then not feel guilty about it. So what does Jesus say? I want to simplify it because, again, you have all those middle examples of him kind of conveying how crazy the Pharisees' oaths were. This is basically what Jesus says. Do not take an oath at all, but let what you say be simply yes or no. Maybe you heard it like this or were taught it like this when I was a kid. Let your yes be yes and your no be no. And Jesus is talking here about everyday kind of ordinary language. He's not talking about the oaths that are taking, let's say, in vows of a marriage which is why this is placed, I think, right here after talking about the unbreakable vows of marriage. Or he doesn't talk about not taking an oath in the court of law, because both in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, and Jesus himself will affirm the use of oaths in those significant situations. But he's saying, do not take an oath at all in just these everyday conversations, because it waters truth down, and it's not necessary The righteous representatives of the kingdom of God do not need oaths. And you do not need a list of things that you can break and not break and based on how you say it. You know what you need in the kingdom of God? Character. Character that commits to truth. He says to his disciples, let your yes just be yes. And your no, no. And don't doctor it up. Jesus wants people in his kingdom to commit to radical truthfulness in a world where truth is often only used when it's to somebody's advantage. Think about this practically. If in everyday situations, maybe you do say this, getting it's kind of more innate, you don't think about it, you say, I swear to God, when you're making a point, when you want people to really believe you, I swear to God. Do you know what you're implying when you say that? You're saying, trust me, but you're implying that times I don't say, I swear to God, you probably shouldn't trust me. But really believe me this time, not other times. I swear to God. Rather, Jesus says, you know what's better than that? Having a character where that language is not necessary. Let it be known and be true to your word. And follow through on your word. Let your yes be yes. Commit to simple, radical truthfulness.
I don't know about you, but in my family growing up, if we said, I swear to God, it's a no-no in the pastor's household, right? We got rebuked, and rightfully so. For one, you are dangerously close to just taking God's name in vain and tossing it around with unimportant things. But secondly, it just shouldn't be necessary. You shouldn't have to swear to God in everyday conversation. Just let your yes be yes and your no, no. And follow through on your word. Have the character to back it up so people will trust you in the future. So again, I come back to, and we close this morning with this question. Why does this matter? Why does this matter? It matters because today, seemingly more than ever, although it was clearly an issue back in the first century too, being committed to radical truthfulness will stand out in a world that is dominated by lies. Dominated by lies for the sake of power. And every day, we're going to wake up and decide, am I going to stand for truth today? Am I going to share truth today and verify truth today? And if we do that, simple commitment to truth you will be a faithful representative of the kingdom of heaven that stands in contrast to the kingdom of this world. Because a distortion of truth, whether lying, whether exaggerating, or just sharing half-truths, that tears away at the fabric of people, at the fabric of institutions, and the fabric of societies. And I don't think I need to explain how with the day that we're living in. Because we're living in the midst of it fake news or conspiracy theories or no regard to verifying something is true, if it, um, that we're glad to verify it if it fits our agenda, and we have no pro- problem ignoring truth if it does not fit our agenda. And hear me, the world, they have no good reason to tell the truth. But those who are ambassadors of another kingdom, church, we have good reason. And this applies to our conversations It applies to things we share on the internet. It applies to vows we take in marriage or in the court of law. It includes text messages to our friends and to our families. Be the kind of person who commits to radical truthfulness. Because God knows it all. and He sees it all. And let us not underestimate the impact of being a truth teller in today's world. So tomorrow morning, I'm going to wake up, and you're going to wake up. Maybe you'll have an alarm clock. Maybe you are your own alarm clock, but you're going to open your eyes, and you're going to swing your legs out of bed, and I want you to ask this question with me. How can I best represent the kingdom of heaven today? Christ died so you can ask that, and the Spirit filled you so you can live it out. Let's pray. Father, we are thankful for the truthfulness of your word, that it is the only source of authority that we know we can go to and that will be perfectly true, Father. So I pray that you would give us the courage to read it and then the courage to live it out as best as we can, Lord. It will be imperfect, and I pray that we will be free to confess that along the way. But Lord, I pray that the people of Grace Church would be faithful representatives to your kingdom. Not so that we can condemn a world around us, but that so we can reach them. 
so that they may see us and glorify your name. And it's in the name of your son, Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. Please stand as we sing and prepare to close our service with the Lord's Supper.